Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Mark Teeley, CEO and founder of Edgefauna. Following a 30-year career in IT and a post as the executive director of Edge Cloud at Ericsson's Edge Gravity Unit, Mark founded Edgevana last year with the goal of disrupting the existing processes for selling and buying co-location, edge, and data center services. In this interview, Mark discusses his mission of lowering barriers to entry to deploy capability at the edge, the economics of shared infrastructure, and why he says the edge could be bigger than the cloud. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Zenlayer. Improving user experience doesn't have to be complicated or expensive. Zenlayer helps you lower latency with on-demand edge services in over 150 POPs around the world. Find out how you can improve your user's experience today at zenlayer.com edge. And now, please enjoy this interview between Mark Teeley, CEO and founder of Edgevana, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hi there, this is Matt Trefiro. I'm the CMO of Edge Infrastructure Company Vapor.io and the co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. And today I'm here with Mark Teeley, CEO and founder at Edgevana. And we're going to talk about Mark's background in technology, the mission of his latest endeavor at Advana and all things edge computing. Hey, Mark, how you doing today? Hey, Matt. I'm doing pretty good, thanks, uh, all things being equal, and uh, happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us. So I want to I start, before we talk about edge and Advana, I want to start a little bit about your background. How, how did you even get into technology? Wow. It's, it's kind of a long story um, filled with romance and danger. But um, no, believe it or not, I was uh, bumming around uh, not knowing what I wanted to do. I was actually working as a security guard taking college classes at a company called Avantech in Santa Clara, California, on the corner of Scott and Bowers. And the lady that used did to run- Did you carry a firearm? Nope. Nope. I did have DOD uh, clearance okay. because we, we did some military stuff. But- um, uh, I, you know, I was taking classes, but I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I could have been a park ranger. Were you, did you have an engineering background or was it liberal arts? What were you, what were you kind of studying? <laughs> I, was, I was kind of studying whatever was good at the moment. I really had no clue who I wanted to be or what I wanted to be. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, looked at, I looked at my future like somebody who looks at a Cheesecake Factory menu and goes, oh, shit, there's so much stuff here. I don't know what to pick, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I... I, I could like doing a lot of things. And so making a choice for me was actually really hard. Well, look at, looking at your career, it seems like it's still hard. Well, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm all over the map uh, to some degree. You know, I think, it's, I think it's helped me in many ways, but yeah, all over the map. But yeah, so the lady that ran the data center used to come down and, and wait for her husband to pick her up. And she came down one day and said, hey, Mark, what do you think about being a computer operator? And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you should come apply. And I said, well, I don't even know how to spell computer operator, you know? And she goes, it's okay. Just come up and apply and we'll see what happens, you know? So I applied, I got the job. A few years later, I became the data center manager. A few years after that, HP bought our company and I had a choice of staying in the data center world, working in uh, HP's sort of mini slash mainframe data centers or taking a beginning bottom of the basement job as a starting PC support person. And I wanted to get into client server. I wanted to get into what was modern. I didn't want to what, go what, in. What's the time frame of this? This is 1991. Okay. So I decided to do client server. And after doing that for a little while, I was asked to take on a, a role as help desk manager. So I, okay, I don't know how to spell help desk either, but fine, I'll do that. And I just grew my career path over the next nine years with HP. I worked for a terrific boss. One of his favorite mottos, I mean, he, he lived by two things that I think were really important. One of them was definitely a Bill and Dave thing because I was at HP uh, and that was open door. And he really lived by that open door policy. But the other one was he told me early on as I was moving through a couple of jobs, he says, Mark, work your way out of a job. I'll find you a better one. That's a great boss. And that's, and that's exactly what I did, right? So over nine years at HP, I went through six different positions um, of greater responsibility until, you know, after starting in 1991 as a PC support tech, not even a college hire PC support tech, I left managing 400 people in an extended organization across California, Colorado, Atlanta, and Boise. 
and uh, then went to startups, you know, buy high, sell low. Yes. So, you know, it was middle of 2000. I joined the oh, networking. Oh, yeah. That's a good time to join. Yeah, perfect time. Six months before the crash. <laughs> right. So I found myself basically in the middle of the worst downturn in Silicon Valley history. And in the last four and a half, five years, I started spending a lot more time on edge uh, working for AppSera because of container management. And many of my working assumptions were that uh, containers, microservices, uh, functions as a service, et cetera, might be ideal for many edge workloads. So that's when I really started paying a significant amount of attention to what the potential opportunity for edge might be. And frankly, you know, why people would adopt edge and what are some of the barriers to entry for having uh, to make that market grow. That's terrific. And, and what, what's been the biggest change in the edge market since it first came on your radar? Yeah, I think more than anything else, it's enthusiasm by a wider uh, portion of the market. Also, um, it's more than just enthusiasm. I think, I don't think, I know that I'm seeing a lot more from a pure numbers standpoint of companies looking at, you know, some pure edge solution. And one of the things that has got me most excited, I guess, it's okay to say that, is the fact that several uh, of the recent edge solutions that I've been talking to potential customers about, even when I was at uh, Edge Gravity, still part of Ericsson, are solutions that I never would have considered, right? I mean, all of us, you know, we, we all have the same uh, cliches about edge. You know, it's a, you know, people always say, oh, it's, you know, automotive and it's healthcare and, you know, it's gaming and all that stuff. Okay, that's great. But, you know, give me some real world. What does it really mean? Who's really going to be using it? Who's going to spend money on it? What does it really need from a latency standpoint? How much data does it create? Well, what kind of networking support does it need? You know, that kind of thing. And those were, those were areas that were being mostly talked about, but ignored up until a couple of years ago. And so recently I've seen solution opportunities or solution requirements for companies and business models that I never would have even considered. And so that tells me that more and more people see the edge as a way to engage with their customers, but also as a way to solve for business problems that people just assumed for years were intractable. Could you uh, walk us through a couple of uh, those examples that you discovered? Yeah, uh, uh, that I like the most. It's a, and I'll even name the dispel. Basically what they're doing is they're doing high security, low latency, data sovereignty to some degree or, or regional sovereignty is, is oftentimes required. 20 millisecond or less, highly secure remote access to control systems for critical environments. Right. I mean, you and I probably could have talked about different edge solutions for hours yeah. and never come up with something like that. And what, is it, what does that mean for critical environments? Like what's the, what's the actual like human use case? Like, like control systems for chemical facility or control systems for a, a mine or, or control systems for a dam, power facilities, even for government activities that need to be really secure, but need to be low latency and in country in many cases. And, you know, this is just, again, you know, we, we all talk about the, in hyperbole about, you know, the benefits and, and need for uh, 5G and all that stuff. But it's, uh, I think what lends weight to the potential opportunity of the future is when these kind of undercover, you know, dark horse opportunities really start popping up. That's when um, I start feeling even more excited about the potential. Yeah, so that, that critical infrastructure example, it's sort of interesting because, you know, one of, the, one of the distinctions that I think is really important to make when talking to people about edge computing is there's a, there's a flavor of edge computing that looks a lot like low latency on-premises computing. Yes. And then there's a version of edge computing that is low latency, but over some last mile network. Right. So the computing is remote in some sense, potentially even provided by a cloud provider or somebody who looks like a cloud provider. So, so first of all, how do, how do you see those two, that distinction and, and as it applies? And then in this critical infrastructure example, which of those or a combination of both is, is the way to deliver a solution that satisfies that customer's requirements? Yeah, I think for the most part in the solutions, the specific solution I was referring to, it's more about distributed infrastructure access, you know, with, with common access methodologies. And so if, if a company has facilities in Africa and Asia and the Middle East, they can go to um, locations that are appropriately sovereign um, from this provider in any of those locations, right? And use common infrastructure and solve for the problem of low latency and security, whether or not the destination has its own compute infrastructure available on campus. And 
I see that as you know truly fitting into what I would describe as as the edge market, whereas on-premises edgification of you know AWS cloud or something like that through something like Outpost, which is tethered, to me is just you know on-premises IT with a collar on it. So it, yes, you could call it edge if you want, and and I don't care if you want to call it edge, but specifically when I'm thinking about edge in the edge marketplace, I'm thinking about companies that are delivering either the capability to run applications or companies that are delivering applications to a broad and diverse customer set over a wide area or even across the globe. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, you talk about this, these changes and these sort of inflection points in the market that you've sensed. And I imagine that, uh, I mean, you just founded a, a new company, Edgevana, earlier this year. And I imagine that some of these insights and uh, inflection points you're seeing drove you to start Edgevana. Can you tell us a little bit about what precipitated Edgevana and who your other co-founders are and what problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, so the, uh, I'll start with the, the problem. Actually, no, I'll start with what I see in the industry and then why I see that as a problem, and then we'll go into the rest of Ajwana. But what I'm, what I'm seeing in the industry is uh, that, and I, I've written about this a couple of times, and you and I maybe even have talked about it at some point in the past, but one of, one of the problems that I see for edge deployment is that uh, there's a wide gap between what people assume is even available and the variety of options that are delivered through different APIs, different languages, different technology solutions for solving either some narrow niche edge opportunity or somebody's idea of solving for a broad edge-based opportunity. And so this, it, it makes the barrier to entry for companies trying to build their own edge solutions or deploy globally um, a lot higher, right? It's like, why would Mark and Matt go to the car dealership and ask for a car with wings on it, right? I mean, unless it was 1959, we wouldn't ask for a car with wings on it because we assume that cars don't have wings. So why would we even ask? Well, unless it flies. I'd take a car that flies with wings. Well, there you go. I mean, and you know, so truth is that's starting to happen now. But generically speaking, people don't ask for things that they don't think they can get. And so many people are either building in secret or they're trying to solve for you know, customer connection issues or data integrity issues or localized IoT issues, et cetera, in their own unique ways. And so I wanna, I wanna try to find a way to reduce that barrier to entry. And I thought one of the best ways to do that was simplify access to the market and to available capacity and capability from networking and, and from data center standpoint, and even just to some degree to skills and, and deployment capabilities for customers so that, well, it's not exactly a vending machine where, where Mark or Matt can go up and, and put a quarter in and get a slice of edge, but it's pretty close to that, right? Is that you can go in and define what you need, search for it, identify it and select it. And even if you're buying it from a dozen different companies, make it look like it's one. And so again, lower that barrier to entry while using, in many cases, using resources that are already available, maximizing the, what's already been constructed and, and deployed in cities everywhere. So, so if, if I could, so I've, I've seen in some of the public, you know, in case our listeners aren't aware, at least the time that we're recording this, it may change by the time this episode's released, Edgevana is still somewhat stealthy. Yep. And so you, you may be a little circumspect in, in the specifics about you answer my questions, but it sounds to me that uh, a little bit of what you're doing is you're providing an abstraction layer for the business as opposed to like uh, an abstraction layer for developers. Well, it, it is. It definitely is more of an abstraction layer for the business and and for the the suppliers to that would be marketplace, right? Right. So aggregating a larger source of of potential customers on behalf that's of right. these suppliers, large and small. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. That's right. I mean, the, the basic the basic idea is that you know you could build the best data center in the world in uh, Austin, Texas, and it may in fact be the best data center in the world. But if your customer needs data centers in five locations or more they're unlikely to spend a bunch of time negotiating with you and the 20 other companies that reside in any or all of those five cities in question in order to get the five best data center operators from those five cities. They're more likely to say, what's the 80-20 rule of data center offerings? Which two companies or three companies have data centers in four or more of those cities? Let's negotiate with them and solve this with one contract, right? Right. And, yet, and I think that's the key. It's not, not that you're providing a directory. You're not Yelp for edge infrastructure. You're actually looking to provide kind of a 
a uniform one point of contact. That's right. Are there any companies in sort of the traditional cloud market that have done something like this that you can think of? There are some companies that I wouldn't say in the cloud market, but there are some companies who have tried to simplify access to both cloud services and data center or networking services. And they are good services. Uh, Many of them are services that if I was still buying co-location space for myself, I might use in the past. But the things that I believe they miss is that they still are heavily reliant on traditional agent and um, broker model. Right. And that these things institute a lot of delay in between uh, identification and actual make uh, of a sale. And that's bad for the customer and it's bad for the seller. And it's also true that, you know, when I talk to, to data centers around the world, and I've been talking in the last two months specifically, you know, every single one of them have validated my concern that they feel that they're becoming more and more invested in five, six, seven of these different kinds of companies that do that service that, that we just referenced like they're ever getting in solid leads from any of them. Generally speaking, you know, my information tells me that those leads are just going to brokers and those brokers are going to the big three because nobody gets fired for picking on one of the big three. Yeah. And, and, and it sounds like you're, you're looking to apply a lot of software automation to this. You know, the, the, the joke is, well, and we actually see this because my company buys a lot of dark fiber. You know, you, you go onto a dashboard and, you know, and order some dark fiber and what actually happens on the back end half the time is like eight emails get generated and a bunch of people have to like go, you know, plug in cables and things. That's right. So you apply software automation, you drive some of the cost out of it, but also you start respecting some of the, the time to market requirements uh, and speed requirements of a lot of these new businesses. But I'm also wondering, you know, one of my hypotheses is that because capacity at the edge is so constrained and... I imagine once the momentum kicks into high gear, the demand is going to outstrip the availability that what we'll start to see at the edge, whether it's a network slice or a piece of storage or a, you know some compute, uh, will be real-time auctions. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you've thought into that domain where your customers are buying global infrastructure or leasing global infrastructure almost on a real-time basis with like automated trading. Yeah, no, um, you're you're right on, Matt. And I mean, I know you you know you guys are a, are a hugely smart group, and so it doesn't surprise me that you'd be suggesting that. But those are some of the things that we're considering as part of the platform. When you think about, because I mean, just logically, right? If we looked four or five years ahead, how do we solve for so many of the problems that we face in the world today relative to available space, cost of compute, trying to be more sustainable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? The best way to do that is to eventually make the entire landscape look more like a combination of Airbnb and just-in-time compute resource, regardless of who positioned the resource there originally, right? And I realize that it sounds simple and it's not, but uh, in the long term, I believe that more and more of the market, based on application design characteristics, if nothing else, along with the capability to do policy-driven workloads against latency, et cetera, et cetera, mean that people can, you know, take a slice of compute at five milliseconds in a thousand cities around the world yeah. and run it for an hour and be done and never have to do it again, right? Yeah. And in, you know, the, the world of today where an application developer is, you know, managing workloads in say the United States in two locations, US West and US East, for example, that that's a very different prospect when you get to a hundred or a thousand locations. You can't just do that in your head or in a spreadsheet. You actually need automation tools. Absolutely. And real-time cost might be changing, right? So I might be a streaming game developer and I'm like, I'm going to have a, you know, a, a competition. Yep. And so I want, as you said, I want, I want a bunch of five millisecond, one gigabit per second network slices in a thousand locations now. And also maybe I'm only willing to spend this much. So go try to get me the best, you know, the best, the best everywhere. That's right. I mean, you know, we, we, we all have a, um, an 80-20 rule or we should for almost everything, right? Yeah. If it's not life critical or safety critical, I think that's certainly the case. That's right. Yeah. Obviously we don't want to pick the 80-20 rule. Okay. Well, 80-20 rule, who's the best doctor? No, I'd rather go with the 90 <laughs> Right. Right. Well, it's okay. If, if it's too expensive to deploy the airbag, we'll just wait. That's right. That's right. But, you know, when it comes to applications, et cetera, we all make trade-offs all the time, right? And, and almost every application environment that I've ever built infrastructure for uh, in my entire career made pragmatic decisions around cost versus performance metrics, et cetera, scalability, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, don't, I see the future of Edge 
the ability to deploy on heterogeneous hardware, to be able to traverse networks, you know, some of the things that you guys are even working on, uh, amazing in that space, to, to really be kind of the future that allows for um, a workload to, you know, sort of like, you know, think about the metal from the Terminator guy and, you know, a little bit of metal is left over and, and it just squeezes in and fills in the where it's supposed to fill in in the body. And I, you know, I really see in the future that more and more application opportunities at the edge, especially when it becomes more of a marketplace for people to deliver um, workloads to, not just because you have a building in the city, but because you're, you're an external party benefiting from the information that's being created by that building in the city, et cetera, et cetera, that this, this chance to literally drop your ounce or pound compute requirement wherever there happens to be a hole that fits um, just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting, Mark. So can you tell us the type of customers that you're targeting? Yeah, I mean, realistically, we're targeting what I would guess is the kind of the top 15% of um, enterprises, companies that approach uh, a, a very wide global audience uh, to some degree, but may not all have the kind of localized footprint that, you know, a Walmart or a McDonald's or somebody like that has, but still needs to be able to reach partners or customers or et cetera, et cetera. And also suppliers, right? Cloud suppliers, et cetera, that CDN suppliers that are trying to expand networks and get access and, and, and shrink their time to value and minimize their overhead associated with contract management or uh, better sustainability, specific regional plays, et cetera, et cetera. Companies that have relatively complex needs around secondary and tertiary markets, global markets, et cetera, are really our best targets. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, one, one of the things, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the industry in general. One of the things that I've heard you say a couple times, and I, I'd like to, to double click on it, is that you predict that the total market size of the edge, I believe it's market size, although maybe there's some other measurement of size, uh, will exceed that of cloud. And I'm just curious, like how you see that, what, what you see driving that, but also what that means. What, it mean, what does it mean for the edge to be bigger than the cloud? And how does that work? Yeah, and it, 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 it's a good question. And luckily, I'm not asked to come up with specifics of how much percentage of that do I see in disk drives versus GPUs versus 5G deployments, et cetera, et cetera, right? I'm allowed to get away with some significant amount of nuance relative to what the market is made up. Generically speaking, when I refer to the size of the market, I'm talking about the, the infrastructure components, uh, networks, um, the IoT devices, and the software that would be used to run on them or make them run. So, so the iron yes. and, the, and the buildings that house them. Yeah, well, not the, not the buildings. Well, it could be the buildings, yeah, certainly from a data center standpoint. Data center perspective, that's what I meant, yeah. Yeah, 5G, um, IoT, I mean, even even things like, uh, you know, face, face recognition cameras or, or cameras as IoT devices, et cetera, you know, all of that fits in there. And the reason, you know, there, there are a number of reasons, man, and, I, you know, I'm, I have to believe I'm, I'm singing to the choir here, but the primary drivers that I see from a value standpoint is that first is, is how I look at the market, right? And I look at the edge market today as roughly 1993, maybe 1994 internet, Right. And what was happening in 1993? Pre, pre-browser or pre- yeah, pre-browser, pre, yeah. pre-standard Pre-Netscape. Browser. Yeah. And some of us, a very small percentage of us thought this, is, this could turn into something big, you know, and people started doing things. And, but there weren't very many of us that were going to be Bezos or, you know, Sergey Brin or anybody. But, you know, just people playing, basically, going from computer to computer over this new network access capability. And within four years... Uh, in you know ninety three to ninety seven, basically, if you were a mid sized company and you didn't have a website, you didn't exist. Yeah, right. And so, when I think about edge and I think about IT history in general, IT history is replete with situations where the desire, the opportunity, has always been there, but what it's waiting for is a barrier to entry to fall in order for it to be financially viable. In some cases, it's a pure technical. Other cases, it's money. But the, the, the question isn't whether the opportunities are there. The question is just whether or not you can deploy technology and capability to make it financially viable. And we're getting to the point now where even without 5G, there are plenty of options to deploy capability at the edge for demand that is being built independent 
of many of us already. Demand in the form of smart cities, smart buildings, smart roadways, autonomous vehicles. Right. And fi- fiber works fine for the, well, autonomous vehicles, maybe not, but fiber works fine for anything that's fixed. That's right. That's right. And so you think about all that stuff and thinking, and so I did a little bit of math, right, on a small city, 100,000 people. And I, I picked a small percentage of the town having smart buildings and smart homes. I think it was like 25%. I, I'd have to go dig up my napkin that I wrote it all down on. And, uh, you know, a, a thousand hours a day of mostly autonomous vehicle data collection and sharing, a thousand hours a day of people doing VR uh, or AR, and a number of other things that might be common in a more edge-infused environment, but only for a small uh, percentage of the city. And turn into 35 extra petabytes of data a month, 35 extra petabytes over what they were already creating, doing whatever they were doing, playing games and, and running their videos around their homes or whatever else they were doing, 35 extra petabytes. Well, there aren't that many cities that are 100,000 people that even have the network to traverse 35 petabytes on an instant basis over the course of a month. On one 10 gig link, that's 324 days. Right. Yeah. For, for very large data sets, sometimes putting it on a disk drive on a train is the fastest way to, to get data a couple thousand miles. Yeah. Right. So when I think about that and I think about how much data is likely to be created and then you and the fact that people are going to want to make use of that data in something approaching real time, I start to think, well, what is that going to do? What kind of backlog is that going to create locally? And how do we, how do we look at that backlog internationally? And I start thinking, and then I, then I, you know, I read, I wrote my first blog about this, like in 2017. And then in 2018, Gartner came out and said 75% of data created in 2025 will be created outside of the on-premises data center or the cloud data center. Yeah. 75% of data. That doesn't mean that if we had four zettabytes today, that three of them will be created at the edge. That means however big we grow between now and 2025, 75% of that new number will be created at the edge. And and when you think about what that means from a mind-boggling number of storage devices and gigabytes that have to be transferred, et cetera, and you start to realize what kinds of business models are likely to be built on top of that infrastructure, the more data we collect, the more we drive down prices for IoT devices, the more networking we make available, the more people find ways to put it to use. And so for every first layer opportunity that people come up with, like finding the best path out of a building when there's a fire or running the air conditioning more effectively, somebody else two years later is going to say they're going to do air conditioning modeling across 20 different towers and determine efficient ways to to balance power for the city or something, right? I'm making up here, but you get the idea. So the first layer opportunity is one that most of us can think about, but as we get compute and capability becomes more available and more permeated in society at what we would consider something like the near edge. What will be amazing, I believe, is, is the new business models that will be discovered that will be built on top of that new data collection. Yeah, that we haven't even contemplated. That's exactly right. And so when I start adding those numbers up, I realize, you know, cloud is going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to migrate apps, build net new apps in cloud where cloud centralization makes a lot of sense. But the edge eventually will be like a combination of enterprise workspace and the iPhone or Android store for applications and the potential permutations of application and application types that could exist in in that kind of future are, are just, they're way beyond, you know, the million plus apps that you would find in one of the phone stores. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So there's there's two things that I'd like to branch off of off of that. One is my CEO Cole Crawford is fond of of offering up a heuristic for edge computing that I think is pretty interesting, especially in light of what you just described, which is the edge computing is most interesting at the intersection of three Venn diagrams: data gravity, data velocity, and data sovereignty. So data gravity is like where the data is created and how how expensive it is to move it around, right? Or where it has most value, the nearest. And yeah, what are what are some of the what are some of the tags and metadata associated with it that make it valuable where it is versus somewhere else? That that's right. Of- or, or then it's just maybe time and cost prohibitive to ship it anywhere else. And then right. the the question of velocity is like, well, what's the half life value of that data? You know, I, I mean, do do milliseconds matter? Do do hours matter? And then finally, like, is it even allowed to leave 
right? You know, is it HIPAA protected or is it is there a county boundary or a country boundary that we need to respect? And if you start looking at all those demands, it makes a lot of sense that there's going to be a tremendous amount of demand for localized compute storage and networking. Uh, and I think that speaks directly to your thesis. Yeah, no, I, I, every, every time I do the math, I'm astounded by what the potential is. And, you know, frankly, to, to something you said earlier, which is, you know, a big part of why I even um, started Edgevana, and I, I'm certain a big reason why you guys are in business is that there, there is no way that the infrastructure we currently have at the edge will be enough to accommodate the kind of growth we'll see three to four years from now. But Yeah, I'm, I'm fond of saying the internet will break. Yes. But <laughs> Even though it's not really true, it, it certainly will, you know, the seams will burst. Yes, yes. And, and the, the opportunity associated with companies like Vapor.io and, and Edgevana, although you could argue that, in fact, I would argue that Vapor.io and Edgevana could likely be partners in some way sure. in this particular model. They're certainly not competitors. Is that the opportunity that we represent in many cases is how do we actually get more value out of pre-existing footprint yeah. beyond just the capacity of the existing white space floor, right? What, is it, what does that mean, Mark? For me, what that means is that, well, just as a, as a simple example, right, I'll mention a couple of things. But if you're, if you're Amazon or Microsoft, doesn't matter, and you're going to go out and identify a new campus for your next 100 megawatt data center, you're probably going to spend somewhere between two and five million on due diligence, right? People traveling, you know, looking at the land, determining what you're going to need relative to permitting. I, I, I can drop a, mil, a megawatt of capacity in a city for that cost. That's the point. That's exactly the point, right? So if we can augment existing installs where there is already power, where there is already network, where there is already land permitting and water, et cetera, et cetera, we can, again, to my earlier point, lower the barrier to entry for expanded access and longevity of existing infrastructure rather than forcing any one of a thousand different people to try to figure out what the best way is to find and build uh, one to two megawatts in any town USA or Europe uh, might be, right? Yeah. There aren't that many full city blocks left in San Francisco, for example. Exactly. And so even from a just a, a real estate standpoint, it's a lot easier to assemble, you know, seven parcels of 200 kilowatts each than it is to find one large parcel to drop down a megawatt. And so, yeah, that's a that's an interesting dynamic that that isn't often thought of, which is just how difficult is it to add capacity into the existing urban infrastructure? Right. That's that's really interesting. The other question, uh, well, not really a question, but one of my hypotheses that I'd love for you to react to is that this whole discussion that kind of compares centralized cloud to edge, in my, in my view, will seem sort of silly in five to 10 years. And the reason for that is like, it all just becomes part of the internet. I mean, the cloud, right? We think of the cloud, okay, well, that's a centralized data center. Well, no, every cloud provider is already pushing capacity out to the edge is signing leases in edge data centers is going to incorporate edge compute into their, you know, traditional offerings, i.e. I can, you know, if today I can only provision EC2 instance in US West and US East, there's some point in the future where Chicago West and Chicago East and Atlanta West and Atlanta East become options for me, or they're going to build it into their IoT tool chain or add it to their their security offering or whatnot. So, you know, the that distinction between edge and core in my view, will largely disappear. It'll just become part of the internet. And then I'm curious if you, if you share that view or if you have kind of a nuanced alternative to that. You know, I, it might be nuanced, but I'm not sure it really matters to the big discussion. I've been in, in several of these debates just recently about, well, you know, the cloud will still lead and, you know, you should design from the cloud out and the cloud will own the control plane and all that kind of stuff. And, and those are all arguments that I can understand where they come from. But in many cases, those arguments are made from the perspective of you have to lead with the cloud because you never want to build edge first because edge is too expensive. And I think that statement is wrong on two counts. One is, you know, edge is only too expensive if the business model you have doesn't have an ROI. Two, edge being too expensive is based on the assumption that we're going to build out edge the same way we've built out traditional enterprise data centers, even traditional cloud data centers. And I would argue that um, there are many opportunities based on new application designs that will proliferate over time at the edge that the infrastructure itself will actually become cheaper over time. And so the, the, the per cost, per you know, node, whatever, is likely to not be 
that much higher from a premium standpoint as central cloud would be. And so, again, once you bring those barriers to entry down, what does that do to expansion of workloads? That being said, just like I don't argue that middle data centers will go away or that edge data centers will be, you know, little half rack boxes or, you know, one or the other, uh, I think all of them will play. And I think what matters in the end is how do we best deploy applications to solve customer needs while maintaining, uh, you know, not only a combination of SLA and availability, SLA on performance and availability um, uh, metrics, et cetera, et cetera, but also on concern around compliance and security and et cetera. And I think public cloud will fit into more and more of the scenario over time. But right now, average access to public cloud is far in excess of 100 milliseconds, even inside the United States. Yeah. And um, so that, you know, you talk about some sort of packet. Well, it's not, and it's not just that, Mark. It's, it's, you know, you can't, again, when you're dealing with low latency workloads, you can't just rely on the average latency. I no, mean, you've got to no. deal with the tail latency. Like, what is the worst case? Because jitter is actually a bigger problem than latency in a lot of cases. Oh, yeah, huge, especially in some of the applications that we're talking about, right? So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think cloud will play a bigger and bigger part going forward, but it's not because it'll take away from edge. Uh, and I think if you think about another analogy that I like to share with folks when they ask me, well, Mark, the cell phone is getting, you know, the, the smartphone is getting so smart. You know, why would we need all that edge compute? Why wouldn't we just do it on the phone? And I say, well, your phone was super smart in 1997 too. Right. Why do you have an iPhone now? <laughs> and 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 where where in the last two decades have we seen any example where the devices get more powerful and they steal workloads from the cloud? That's right. It's just the opposite. Just the yeah, opposite. It, it creates more. It creates more in both places. Yeah. So That's I right. I definitely definitely uh, agree. There's a little bit of a Javon's paradox going on with device capacity in the cloud. Yep. Well, so so that suggests to me that there may be some opportunities for either new startups or companies that aren't in what we think of the cloud today. So leasing of infrastructure to emerge. And, you know, some are obvious, you know, some of these agile bare metal companies like uh, Packet or Zenlayer are creating really interesting opportunities by specializing in edge. But also if you look at like the CDNs, you know, if, if you really look at the history of edge, you know, my first reference to edge computing in the sense that, that you and I are talking about it comes from the original research paper that the guys at MIT wrote before they founded Akamai. Yeah. And uh, what you're seeing now is a lot of the CDN companies are starting to look like cloud companies where they'll run workloads, you know, even like a company like StackPath, which they'll run containers, they'll run VMs, they'll run serverless workloads. And so do you see and, and do you anticipate there being some disruption to the existing cloud players? Well, uh, I'll, what I'll say, Matt, is that I hope there is. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I, I don't um, have anything against the offerings from any of the large cloud providers. Certainly not, yeah. They, they all solve real problems and they're, and they're a boon to business by and large. And so I don't have anything against them. But I don't necessarily want to assume that the future of Edge belongs to five global companies, right? Yeah. I would, I would much prefer a more vibrant environment. And, and frankly, I think that companies that find the right way to leverage and gain access to markets with smaller initial footprints on shared infrastructure, whether that shared infrastructure is network or data center or, or compute or all of the above, in many cases that already exists, i.e. building out an Akamai install and just adding some additional capacity and, and capability for for cloud offerings or at Cloudflare, et cetera, et cetera. I think uh, those companies and companies like them stand a real opportunity to build the next new set of large column cloud players, if you want, but I would call them, you know, edge infrastructure or, or edge application delivery companies. Yeah, it's it's really interesting in this this innovators dilemma scenarios that that creates. You know, I had a conversation with one of the major wireless carriers, which I, I won't name. And and again, even in these large companies, you talk to different people in different divisions, they have different points of view. But this this gentleman's point of view was we build infrastructure and we own infrastructure. So we put up our own towers, we trench our own cable, we build our own data centers, and that's how we've always done it and that's going to be our competitive advantage. And you know, you kind of think, well, does the CFO agree with that? Right. And does that create more disadvantages than advantages? Certainly advantages in owning a lot of your own infrastructure, but there's also complexities. And you look at a company like Dish, that's like, they have a complete greenfield. And 
you know, from what I can tell, they're like, well, we'd like to see a world where we don't own anything. You know? yeah. And yeah. I think the one of the things that's largely overlooked, and maybe it's just because it's kind of boring to talk about, but just the economics of shared infrastructure are so compelling. If I have to build a data center everywhere I want to put a rack versus leasing a rack from someone that's already built the data center, or yeah. I have to trench cable versus you know, leasing a wavelength, but the economics are so different. And then the ability to shift CapEx to OpEx. I mean, if I'm going to virtualize my network, why would I even want to own servers? Why wouldn't I just lease them from, from one of the cloud providers or one of the bare metal providers? Right. Uh, you want to comment on that? Well, I, I mean, I, we sort of were touching on that earlier. And so the easy answer is that I totally agree with that. The idea that shared infrastructure is the opportunity going forward, and you know, from a from a specific example, you know, Edgevana is, is trying to help enable that, make better use of what's already there. But also, it's that shared infrastructure tends to help you focus on what's actually important to your customers rather than what is comfortable. Right. That's uh, a good way of putting it. Yeah. Right. And when you look at, you know, any one of the big wire or wireless uh, companies in North America, for many years, I've looked at those companies and said, wow, these guys, I mean, even before the term cloud became really big, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 2006, 2007, I was talking about this and saying, these companies stand to make them make mint in this circumstance, right, um, of cloud, because they own the network and the network is the most important part of this, Right. But I looked at it, the network being the most important part, not as a way to specifically make money on network, but as a way to enable greater use of other environments, right? And so to your point about shared infrastructure, you think about the superhighways in North America or even Europe, you know, they were, they were built in the 40s and 50s and 60s by and large, and the United States still makes a buck 10 on every dollar they spent building those in additional tax revenues. And they don't charge tolls on any of them. So how does that happen? Well, it happens because by making commerce easier, so trucks have shorter distances to go to get to deliver their loads, and there are more reasons to build industry or um, retail on the sides of freeways, which create more tax opportunity, more gas sales, more uh, slurpy sales, and so on and so on and so on, that the, the highway seems like something you would forget. And yet it's foundational to all that enterprise that occurs above it. And so when companies get too tied to owning their infrastructure, they really run the risk of saying, well, I need to figure out how to make money on that infrastructure. And instead of looking at it as how is this an enabler for a bigger picture down the road? That's really interesting. The, the highway analogy, well, the economics effect of highway analogy, or the railroads for that matter, the same thing, yep. uh, is a really interesting way of looking at it. And it makes me think, do you think that government has a role to play in bringing you know, edge computing into the mainstream? Well, I, I do think that there's potential opportunity in, in certain places like you know, making more wavelengths available, helping standardize you know, 5G if possible, potentially creating more right-of-way opportunities. But Realistically, if I had to pick one thing, Matt, it would be that I would love for us to do something the equivalent of the, you know, the, the Tennessee Valley Authority or the original you know, phone in every house, regardless of cost type of initiative from the federal government. Because, you know, frankly, I just think that the world turns on internet access these days, whether it's for your education or for shopping or for your utilities or whatever the case may be. And I think we stand in a better position with a stronger economy and a stronger populace and, a, and, and better chances to grow when we give that what I would consider a right to everyone. And so if I could pick one thing for the federal government to do, it would be to pull together the necessary resources and, and hire the necessary 100,000 people you know, to work on a project to make sure that everybody had access to internet bandwidth. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and it you know it made me think of you know again the highways are a really interesting example, right? So so in many ways the highways became a platform upon which all these other businesses and economic opportunities were built. That's right, and that's one of the power of platforms. And you know we're entering a world that edge computing is going to open up that I don't think we've ever seen before. So you think about um, like precision agriculture, right? 
and it's and it's clear, you know, we need new ways to feed our planet. Our population's growing. We've got climate issues and all kinds of things. And so the ability to grow food more effectively is a, a very, very important part of what it means to survive in the future world. Absolutely. And what's different is, so, so we can imagine lots of companies building technology that can apply to a farm. But once the farm is realistically connected to the internet, and I don't mean, you know, somebody placed a cable box at the farmer's house. I mean, the farmer's got sensors and, you know, GPS driven tractors and things like that, that you've suddenly turned the farm into a programmable platform. Right. So that the next wave of startups can innovate without actually owning farms, without actually owning tractors, without actually owning sensors in the same way that, you know, Uber doesn't own any cars, doesn't uh, sell or build cell phones, doesn't put satellites in the air for GPS, but has built this amazing service with software on top of a platform that other people have provided. Right. Yeah. And, that, and you, can, you can easily see how that's going to contribute trillions of dollars to the economy. Oh, just amazing. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny because I have a sustainability bent. And, you know, the first thing I think of with farming, and then I could think of 100 application uh, opportunities on top of it, like some of the stuff you were talking about. But, you know, I think about the farms in California, where I'm originally from, or at least, you know, lived there for the better part of my life. And I think about the water woes that California struggles with all the time. And, you know, I realize I'm generalizing, but generally speaking, you know, the, the governor will yell at the citizenry to reduce their water usage. Well, the citizenry only uses like 15% <laughs> or 15%. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so yeah, we could cut, you know, 15 or 30% of our use and that's not even 1% of total use. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, if farms could cut 5%, they'd cut more than all of the citizens. Which can be done. I mean, you look at like drip irrigation in Israel. That's right. right. Yeah. That's really, that's really amazing. That's really yeah. amazing. Yeah. So I, w- I have a couple last questions. So the first one is let's, let's look out into the future. Let's look out, you know, 18 months and two questions. So one is, how does the world of Edge look different to you? And then if there was one domino you could nudge and topple now to help make that a reality or accelerate it, what would it be? So how's it, how's it look in 18 months and what, which domino would you nudge? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in, in 18 months, we're not going to see too much that's extraordinarily different but I think we're going to see a considerable amount of development and much broader utilization in several categories of edge or verticals of edge opportunity. And I think one of the biggest areas that we're going to see, I mean, we're going to see it in gaming. We're going to see it in some of the fundamental ones that people always talk about, gaming, entertainment, retail. I think we're going to see a lot in those areas, uh, maybe even some in telemedicine and potentially even in remote medicine, but maybe not in 18 uh, months. But I think uh, one of the biggest areas of opportunity, uh, which may sound stupid because you'd think we'd been doing it forever, is working from home, which I now call working from anywhere, right? And I don't know what the estimate, the current estimate is for people not going back into the office, but I feel like a conservative estimate is is 20% uh, will likely not go back to offices ever, right? Yeah. Well, it's 100% for me. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I never need to go back into an office. Yeah. Same, same for me. And I, I mean, I specifically, and I, you know, some of the companies that I would be thinking of, uh, you know, the founders who have told me, I, I'm not going to renew my lease. I'm not going to have a building yeah. for a startup anymore. You know, we're not going to do it. And so- Those will make great apartments and data centers. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, 20% is probably ultra conservative, but imagine if 20% of companies or buildings no longer existed. And so working from home took on a different meaning because historically, when you or I have said we're working from home, we're working somewhere that's 30 minutes or 40 minutes from an office, right? Well, what happens when there is no office? Now working from anywhere is much more appropriate, right? And so what does working from anywhere mean? Well, it may not mean a whole lot of difference for the average traveling salesman or consultant, but what does it mean for people that work on high-touch interactive applications all day long for their company? Certainly. Can they afford to have the kind of interruptions and the poor performance that the average household suffers from today? Uh, what would that do to longevity for employees? What would that do for productivity for companies? So our ability over time to recreate life in all of its new forms, not just the remote office, but distributed entertainment in the vehicle, on the road, in the park, at home, whatever the case may be, to recreate that in a way that 
that doesn't just do it as good as we've been doing it, but beats it. Because once people taste better, there's no going back. And I think that that's likely the area where we'll see the most growth and the most change over the next 18 months. That's a really exciting vision. It's a really exciting vision, Mark. And so which of the dominoes would you, would you push over if you could to make all that happen? I think potentially the biggest domino is better security in general, right? I realize that's really boring and it's probably not what anybody on the phone or <laughs> computer wanted to hear. But I think security is one of, the, one of the biggest areas of opportunity because, and security combined with compliance is the more automagic we can make people being able to work securely and protect data um, sovereignty or data compliance issues for their companies, the more effective these kinds of plans can be and, and more natural they can be for the user. So those are the things, um, you know, over and above what, what people like Vapor.io and Edgevon are trying to do for the market as a whole. Those are the things I see as, as real opportunistic for um, that segment of the opportunity. Yeah, and certainly security is, is I agree with you, a major area of, of concern and potential innovation that needs to happen. That's great. So, Mark, thank you so much. As usual, having a conversation with you is a delight. We probably could have gone on another two hours, and maybe we'll have you back on and, and do part two. But for those of our listeners out there that want to get a hold of you, how can they find you online? Yeah, I, I'm uh, pretty active on Twitter and almost as active on LinkedIn. So feel free to go find me under Mark Teeley on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, I am M-T-H-I-E-L-E-1-0. And I, I love interaction. And in fact, I'm commonly testing my assumptions on both platforms. So I love that interaction and learning every time I'm out there. Who has M-Teeley 1 through 9? That's what I want to know. I, I don't know, but it was an old it was an old login that I used for an account somewhere, and so when I couldn't get M Teeley or Mark Teeley, you at just the did time, ten. I just did ten. That's awesome. And we'll put all these links in the show notes too. So, Mark, thank awesome. you so much. Really appreciate the conversation today. It was fun. Awesome. You guys take care. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven, Vapor IO. Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Zenlayer's Global Edge Cloud Platform lets you improve digital experiences for your users instantly. You only have fractions of a second to grab a user's attention before they give up and move on. But lowering latency doesn't have to be complicated or expensive. Zenlayer offers on-demand edge services in over 150 POPs around the world, with expertise in fast-growing emerging markets. Whichever Zenlayer edge services you choose to lower latency, you'll find the result is a happier, more engaged user base. Visit zenlayer.com edge to learn more.